You're listening to episode 125 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 1st of December 2020. We're nearly there. We are. Should I uh, say Happy Christmas yet? Too early? Too soon? Bit, bit early, although my Christmas tree is up. That's pretty, yeah. You've got that in early this year. I have not done that yet. No, well, to be fair, you've only just got into your house. So. Yeah, I'm not even sure where the Christmas tree box is, if I'm entirely honest. Yeah, I think it's perfectly legit to uh, start decorating early this year. I think the, the more things to celebrate, the better, to be honest. Exactly. I've noticed a lot of twinkling lights on my street. So, Steph, what have you been working on this week? Well, Simon, on the topic of Christmas, I've got a very good gift recommendation, should anyone need one. Or maybe it will make a nice little gift for yourself to frame and put on your wall. We've just put some handmade prints up on our website. Uh, they are these amazing, beautiful, really high quality A5 prints, which are quoting Julian of Norwich with her very famous all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well quote. So these prints were handmade by Print to the People, who are a community printmaking studio in Norwich that we love to work with. And all of the money raised from buying these prints is going to go towards our Escalator Talent Development program fundraising campaign. So for those that don't know, every year our Escalator program um, works with early career writers in the east of England. We usually pick 10 writers and we provide them with eight months of mentoring and training and guidance and networking. And from that, we often find that these writers go on to find agents, get published, win prizes. And we're also focusing a lot on uh, writers that are underrepresented in the publishing industry at the moment. So it's a really important program that we really want to continue with. But unfortunately, due to things like the COVID crisis, it's made funding quite difficult. So this year, we actually only had six writers rather than the normal 10. So we want to get that back up to 10 next year. And it costs about £2,200 to support each individual writer. So what we decided to do was, because we had these lovely prints that were designed, we're selling them on our website. They're £10 each. And if you get your order in over the next couple of weeks, we'll even post it to you for Christmas. And we'll chuck in a copy of our lovely, very popular Walking Norwich chat book, so get buying. This is a really great fundraising opportunity and it's a really lovely way to support underrepresented writers and to make sure that we can continue running Escalator year on year. Yeah, and if you've been listening to the podcast uh, this year, you'll have heard Richard Lambert on it recently talking about the Wolf Road and Richard was a, a former Escalatee who has done very well for himself and his book came out just a couple of months back and in fact it's started appearing on best of lists for the year best children's and teens books been very highly recommended um and as you say there's we've got a whole host of former escalates as we like to call them that have gone on to do really fantastic things which is why it's so important that we're able to continue working on this program okay so on the podcast today we are very excited to have will harris who is a poet that many of you will be familiar with already, particularly if you took part in our book club this year, because earlier, a couple of months ago, we had Will's book Rendang as the book that we were reading. Uh, if you read that at the time and enjoyed Flo's chats on Zoom and the discussions over on our Discord, then yeah, this is fantastic to get Will on the podcast talking with Flo all about his work and his path into being a poet. So Will is a writer of Chinese, Indonesian and British heritage. 
His debut poetry book, Rendang, is published by Granter in the UK. And it won the Ford Prize for Best First Collection this year and shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize for next year. And his collection, Rendang, also just made The Guardian's pick of Best Poetry Books of 2020, which is lovely. That, that was literally this week, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was the other day. And coincidentally, I believe Richard Lambert was also on that list. I know. So, you know, come on the podcast and great things happen, basically. Uh, Flo, who is our, our resident poetry expert, uh, talks to Will all about his route into becoming a poet and kind of how he regards the concept of his writing career. And he has some really interesting ways of looking at that and you know what the difference is between Will Harris the poet now and Will Harris the poet who was 15, but also how that can relate to new poets and up and coming poets who are maybe struggling to kind of break out into where they'd like to be. Let's hand over to Flo, who is asking the questions. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and many congratulations on your prize win. Uh, last night, the forward prizes were announced and you've won the Felix Dennis Prize for the best first collection. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Florence. So we're so lucky to have you with us today, um, especially following that fantastic win. And thinking about your recent successes, I wonder if you could describe to us your writing journey to date. How did you get from point A to uh, being a prize-winning poet? It's really strange. In some ways, it is quite an easy question to answer because I can talk about certain things I did or things I applied for, places I went people I've met, were, you know, poems I read, poems I wrote that meant things to me. But in many ways, it feels like nothing has really changed since I was 15 and started writing poems, um, which is why I find it really hard and quite destabilizing when people talk about a poet, poetry career or talk about you as having a career or describe you from the outside as if you're You've kind of like, mach- you know, machinated your way somewhere with a goal in mind. For me, it feels like I've just like been doing something very private in my own room, just like tapping against a screen or a piece of paper, and the context around it has just shifted. But I know that's obviously a really annoying answer as well because it's not it's not true, and it makes poetry seem more like oblique and mysterious when people don't talk about the actual concrete things which change um, to make the writing, um, to allow their writing to reach more people, which I will talk about. But it just also feels really important to emphasize, I guess, how disconnected from all of that stuff the writing feels. Like I remember when I first had a poem published in Poetry Review after being rejected having you no know, poems rejected from there for years and years and years and not really understanding how any poems ever get got published. And I, I just became this kind of mythic thing. You know, if you're, if you're published somewhere, then suddenly everything changes and it was published. And, and then it, it was just, nothing happened. Nothing, nothing changed. I was still the same person. Nobody really noticed. I started writing when I was 15. I, um, I guess things, it felt like, Things shifted for me when I 
was part of when I became part of this mentoring scheme called the Complete Works. And again, that didn't, and, and I had um, Sarah Howe was assigned as my mentor. Again, it didn't, there was something which when I became part of it, I was like, wow, this is so exciting. But it, there wasn't an immediate difference or change at all. But suddenly it was just the having other writers around me whose work I felt connected to, like um, Mumtaza Mary, Victoria Adekwai Bully, Raymond Antrobus. And we just had regular seminars, and that really helped me think of myself differently as a writer, or maybe think of myself as a writer, not just someone who wrote poems for themselves, which weren't published. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, and then I guess in terms of publication, you start building up, you start publishing in various places, if you're lucky. And, and I did that for a bit and seemed to develop a bit of momentum. I had a pamphlet which came out with a small press called Happenstance, based in um, Fife in Scotland, run by this great person called Helena Nelson. And she was really supportive because she does, she, I don't know if she does anymore because it's like a one person operation, but she used to do this thing where she'd offer feedback on a manuscript for free. Isn't you'd, oh, fantastic. you'd submit your poems during her open windows mm. for submissions. And I did this a couple of times and she just would get, write these amazing handwritten notes on your poems. And even when she was rejecting them, it made me feel really kind of seen. And so she published a pamphlet of mine in 2017. I guess that helped. But then, and then the book came about uh, Rendang because I published a poem in Granta and then Rachel Allen, the editor there, emailed me saying that they would potentially, they were potentially going to start doing poetry books. And she asked if I just had a manuscript that she could see. And I didn't really have a manuscript, but I sent her all the poems I had and she was really supportive. And we kind of started discussing it and working on them. And then it became a more formal offer. But again, it was just so lucky. I mean, it was really lucky that I happened to send her some poems originally and that she happened to think of them and ask. But I guess at the, at the same time, I was trying to put work out there where I could. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then kind of cumulatively, it, it makes a difference, all the things that don't feel like they do. Because I know it can be disheartening for a lot of poets, you know, you put stuff out there it gets rejected and it does get accepted. You don't feel like that much has shifted or changed. It's like you're back to point A again and again. But I think it does make a difference. Um, but often that difference is not seen or heard. I know that social media makes seems to make things more visible, but I mean, I know that I've like read and loved a lot of poems and poets and I haven't tweeted about it or Insta, you know, or post it on Instagram, but I will, you know, know those poets and look out for them. And I guess you have to trust that your work is reaching people in that way. Yeah, thank you. That, that that's so lovely um, of you to have been so honest. I think about everything that you've achieved so far, and I mean, you know, the, this forward prize win is just one aspect of it. Um, Rendang has had such brilliant reception. Um, all over the place, including from the readers in our book club, who we've we've just loved it. I was so pleased because we hadn't read a poetry book 
um, before. Mm. This was the first one we were going to tackle together. Um, and I wasn't sure how it would play out, whether, <laughs> you know, we might attract some new people, others might feel that perhaps poetry wasn't their usual wheelhouse, but um, everyone's decided to give it a go. And, you know, I think we've we've had so much to talk about, which I've got a couple of questions actually from them that I'd love to come back to oh, yeah. later. But thank you. Hearing hearing about that balance between making the work public and receiving recognition, but the writing still being something private and something that you have to just just work at. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the pamphlet. All this is implied. Um, some of the poems from the pamphlet reoccur in Rendang, your first collection, and. I wanted to know how you found that process of moving from individual poems to a pamphlet and then to a collection. And you've already mentioned that the, the work is cumulative, but do you start out thinking that, yes, I'm going to write a book of such and such a length? Or do the poems build on each other gradually until you've left with a book? I think it depends. A lot of really exciting work at the moment actually feels less cumulative in that, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, book length sequences or with the pamphlet, I guess I just had enough poems at that point, which were good. And that was definitely the, the vibe of that. And I, it, it feels, I'm kind of a little bit embarrassed of some of them, but it also, that's kind of the point of publishing, I guess, or what, the value in publishing is that you put stuff out there that then enables you to kind of move on and grow and develop. The book was different to the pamphlet in that even though it does use some of the same poems, I really tried to make it a coherent thing and an argument. I, um, well, maybe not an argument, or like to create the sense of a kind of journey. And I don't really think those poems make that much sense aside, you know, except as in relation to each other. And actually Rachel was really amazing at that in terms of breaking down poems, recombining them, using the page differently, make, making me see the links between them and and, the, and and in the end cutting out poems which were individually strong but which didn't add to that sense of the wider structure. Because I think a book does kind of need that actually in a way that a pamphlet can be just a series of really good poems. I think a book needs something to kind of bind it together. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Rendang because um, from talking to fellow readers in our book club and having reread it a few times now, what I'm really struck by every time I return to it is its emphasis on communication and how it's sort of digging into how we communicate with each other, what um, you know, kind of uh, partial or frustrated communication means for us, as well as moments of that kind of strange clarity that you get, even even with a stranger. Why why did those ideas come to the fore, and what is it about um, poetry as a as a genre or a form that allowed you such flexibility in exploring that and your other themes? What's exciting about poetry and maybe is why it's it can it can put some people off 
is that it really is about the, the the act of communicating itself rather than the the story being told or the characters you know like a novel might be it's about the, the trying to say something or the failing to say something i've been teaching this um online course on a poet critic called veronica forrest thompson and she has this great uh quote she uses from wittgenstein where she says don't forget that a poem even though it's composed in the language of information is not used in the language game of giving information so immediately poetry begins with a refusal to kind of play the game of giving you know giving information to play by the normal rules of communication and i think that can make people understandably uncomfortable because you're like what is you know this isn't like an article or a or a story this isn't i don't know how to read this um but i mean i personally have always been really obsessed with that idea of of trying to communicate misunderstanding mishearing misseeing miss yeah partly because that's always been my experience as a person in the world um my mom is chinese indonesian so she comes from she's like a minority within a minority and so no one no one has ever correctly identified where i'm where i'm from when they've met me even though they've tried yeah so i think i've always been aware of those kind of lapses and the kind of creative space that you know opens up yeah absolutely i'm just remembering um i think in mixed race superman you quote that wonderful sarah ahmed quote about um feminism being something that stops the smooth smooth flow of communication and i think yeah i I can see that really coming through in rendang as well um Mm. yeah i love that i love that that quote too fantastic well we'll have to we'll have to come back to mixed race superman i i can't wait to dig into that one with you a, a little bit as well um i just wanted to pick up briefly on something you mentioned just then about um, poetry not necessarily um, having elements of story, having elements of, uh, I suppose, a sort of linear linear narrative form, but um, something I think that's so unusual about Rendang is the huge range of poetic forms that you use, and, and some of those are verging on narrative as well. We have flashes of story in some of the poems, um, strange encounters in the pub recounted um Mm. and Mm. i wondered if you could say a little bit about how you arrived at using this particular variety of forms in such an inventive way what attracted you to to writing poems that are so different one from the other in terms of the, the the narrative poems i think i i went through this period of just trying to write quite directly about things I saw and did and people I met in London, particularly encounters with strangers. And and they ended up coming out as narrative poems. I guess because and and, and as I've reflected on this since, which is not something I was consciously thinking of at the time. Um, I think that the the lyric as a mode 
is very is is kind of language focused and it's often not very good at capturing the sense of a, a person a body in a historical time in you know in a in a place in the world whereas with narrative you can do that you can create the sense of people from different places meeting each other talking interacting um and i kind of i and that's what i wanted i wanted something that was more direct more real more true to my experience of the world and my life in london i guess in particular um and the experience of living in an urban environment and yeah so they, they kind of ended up being these story poems even though yeah I, I never really thought i would write that kind of poem because i i don't really think of myself as being like a story person i'm really bad at stories telling stories thinking in terms of stories i think of them more as about in fact one one <laughs> maybe one breakthrough was realizing that a story is just one thing after another um which is kind of obvious but actually once i had that in my head there was a kind of it was kind of liberating to realize i could just stack things up like that and use that as the, in this in this more direct and visceral way to create um a new texture and what i was writing yeah that's a lovely way of putting it actually i think um there's so many different textures within rendang lyric forms as you say elements of narrative and yeah just a lovely way to think of it um i wanted to ask sort of uh building on from that how you've used different genres or different modes within a single book um i think just before rendang came out you'd had some success with the book length essay mixed race superman um which takes on some of the same themes and concerns as you explore in Rendang, questions of having a mixed heritage, um, of how people read and misread and sort of, I suppose, interpolate um, others, on often on racist grounds, racial grounds, um, and other ways that we, we uh, I suppose, ways that we interpret each other. Mm. intentionally or not um and i just wondered if you could describe your experience of writing in these two very different genres poetry and and essay and why did you choose one form for some of what you wanted to explore um on these these similar themes and why the other form for some other ideas mm. I I guess I like essays probably for a similar reason I like poems and that they're both quite badly defined capacious genres you can kind of throw a lot of stuff in but you can I guess include more with prose and also you can construct more complicated arguments you can I mean obviously you know these aren't rules but you can you can in general creates a more complex argument in in prose i'd say and particularly with that book what i was trying to write or try and understand myself i was trying to tease out these quite complicated connections between um 
the cult of the hero or the great man in the 19th century with the rise of race science and how that fed into um, 20th and 21st century discourses around race. Um, So, I mean, that would have been very hard, I think, to do to do in a poem. And I, though I do sometimes feel the problem with writing in different forms is that you always feel the lack of what you're not doing or what you can't do. That's also a reason to do it because you're constantly being like jettisoned from one thing to the next. Um, but um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm kind of, I, I feel like I don't, I'm not entirely clear on the relationship between those two projects. Maybe because it's still too recent. Even I wrote the essay, I don't know, two and a half years ago now. It doesn't feel that long. Um, they, they feel quite different, but there are probably more overlaps than I, I'm aware of. One thread I think of is um, a lot of the essay turns on the, uh, so it's kind of written this, I guess, fairly fragmentary style, but the pieces all kind of link up. And one of the threads running through and joining the the fragments is um, this theme of knowing, um, which goes back to, Lin, you know, Carl Linnaeus, this um, Swedish uh, botanist who who composed, uh, who, who created all these like taxonomies that we still use, like kingdom, phyla, all that kind of thing. And under, with the Homo sapien in this this big book he put together, he instead of putting a description of all the, the various like physical characteristics as he did with all the other animals, he just put uh, know thyself or whatever know thyself was in Latin because it was written in Latin. And there's so a lot of race science arose from this like ta- this um, this urge to taxonomize to categorize and often. People of other races, um, i.e., not white. I mean, I'm kind of loath to use the like basically racist terms like um, Aryan, Caucasian, Nordic, all kind of bullshit terms. Um, but basically, non-white races were seen as um, were like capable of being categorized, and and there were like various justifications or explanations for their like differences to do with blood or heredity. But anyway, <laughs> this, this thread of like knowing and therefore of um, kind of goes through and is like a kind of clarion call among like white nationalists in the early, early 20th century, you know, know thyself, know yourself, know who you are. And I guess one thing, it, and, and that has resonances for the mixed race experience. So, you know, because there's this whole thing within the literature of people who have multiple heritages of like passing, passing as white or not passing. I, I, and also of confusion, the like tragic mulatto stereotype, because, you know, people who are like bound to have a tragic fate because they don't know themselves fully because they have this mixed parentage. But it strikes me that, I mean, the whole problem with it is this idea of knowing in the first place, that you have a fixed identity that you can know. And one thing I, I guess I, try and explore my poems. And the poems are really good at exploring is this idea that you don't, you're not speaking from a fixed point. You know, the I in a poem is never stable. That's what I always loved about it. It's always kind of shifting. And likewise, all the other pronouns, you know, they're all kind of in flux in the way. 
And it's more about address and communication, like you were saying. Um, and you can more, more complex interrelationships without this kind of urge to know and to categorize and to taxonomize. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's such a brilliant insight into what you were thinking while writing both books. Thank you. I think, yeah, self, um, Mixed Race Superman has that real sort of self-reflexive mode, I suppose, looking at, at this uh, command to know oneself and actually looking at on a perhaps on a, a personal or an individual level the the power that there is in in not confining oneself to a single point and Rendang I think takes that out into the world a, a bit and how you're encountering strangers and writing writing from that and yeah as you say the different points that that lyric eye can inhabit really fascinating thank you 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 mentioned a lot of the sources you're working with in mixed race superman looking at a lot of this racist pseudoscience and how that has influenced modern discourses today at the same time you're looking at the life and work of keanu reeves not not just as another mixed race person and public figure but as the character Neo in the Matrix films, looking at uh, Barack Obama also, and in Rendang, I think there's there's multiple times where you return to uh, Coleridge's Ancient Mariner, and I was just really struck by the range of sources that you're engaging with across both books. Um, some of them are pop culture, some of them are are you know, historical sources, uh, poems, and and other texts as well. How do you how do you find and use these references and and put them into uh, poems or essays that are talking about today? Really, it's it's quite something I think to be able to use those sources as nimbly as you do. And I, I wondered if you had a particular process or approach that you use. That's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I used to be really good at taking notes um, and having notebooks, but um, I've got a lot worse at that. And now, actually, I, I don't. I, I almost never use my notebook, which I feel really bad about because I mean, notebooks are great because for that kind of thing you're talking about, you know, you can you can have like a diary entry, you can have a quote from a book have something you know a sketch and they, and they all sit alongside one another and then you can go back to them read over them and then that will generate a new idea whereas if you just make a note on your phone or on a computer it's already kind of i guess categorized it's like logged away and so it's less creative but in general that's what i do now so yeah with a lot of uh, yeah with a lot of those poems maybe they did come out of my notebook or i don't know i guess you read stuff and you try and internalize it so that when you write, you're not consciously thinking of it. I mean, I wasn't. Maybe with the, the Ancient Mariner reference, which comes in with that, uh, a poem about this guy in a pub who started talking a lot about his life in this slightly harrowing way. I think I just had it in my head for a while, but well, I'd, just been, I'd, I'd just always been slightly haunted by that, that figure of someone who's, 
who's compelled to talk, uh, but that talking brings no no respite. No. And and also the loose analogy with writing, you know, as in some people describe writing as therapeutic, which I think it can be, but then there's this other side to it, which is that it changes nothing really internally. As in, and sometimes, or sometimes like with the ancient mariner, it gives you a brief moment of respite, but then it kind of comes back. This, and that actually, once you have this output, then it can develop. You can develop this a dependence on it, on the need to express yourself in that way, which doesn't treat the kind of underlying stuff, difficult stuff, which creates the urge in the first place. So I think that was already in my head, <laughs> and then and then just found the pub, and he just was seemed to be embody that. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I've just got a couple more questions to ask you, and one of these comes from our book club. Um, some of us have already met um, to discuss Rendang, and we were particularly struck, I think, by the final poem in the collection. And there are a couple of places in Rendang where the speaker of the poem whispers the word Rendang to the pages of the book that are spread around them on the floor, speaking to the manuscript of, of the book itself, I suppose. And the pages respond, no, no, no. And that was that's such a powerful way in which to end the book, I suppose. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you've included this in the book and why is it the point you've you've ended on why do the poems answer no <laughs> i almost feel like i shouldn't give my interpretation because the problem is when uh an, an author gives their interpretation it becomes it kind of can take um it can take priority over readers interpretations and i believe really strongly you know pretty like <laughs> standard death the author stuff that the reader's interpretations are just as important but particularly in poetry are more important than than the the authors as in it's that's what's exciting about a poem that an author often doesn't even know isn't even fully in control of their material but on another level i guess it links to some of the stuff we were saying about communication and also mm-hmm. to this um, to my reading of that, the ancient mariner figure and the analogy with writing, that actually you write thinking at first, or when you start, you think you're gonna, it's gonna be a way of knowing yourself, a way of reaching this kind of plateau of, um, of like calm and self knowledge and like kind of, yeah, Zen like acceptance. But that, but then I guess the no is a kind of reminder that that the writing can't give you that, and that actually, if anything, what it can give you is just that gesture of refusal. It can tell you, remind you that the most powerful word you have is is yeah is is no. The most powerful thing you can do is reject those narratives. Thank you. That's. That's a beautiful note for us to, to draw to a close on, I think. Writing as a, a gesture of refusal. Um, yeah, thank you. 
Um, I'd just like to finish off by asking if you can reveal anything about what you're working on at the moment or what readers can expect next from you. Yeah, I've, I've been um, I've been writing quite a lot, actually. I've, I've, I've got really obsessed with this uh, a new project that I've been working on for the last, I guess most of the yeah, last year. It's because, you know, a book, you finish it quite a long time before it comes out. There's this weird lag. And then I think sometimes I feel this, like, rush of, shame when i just finish something like oh no that's terrible that's not good you know and i like so it kind of forces me to then try and work out what i want to do and work harder and i've been writing these uh i guess they're pamphlets individual pamphlets which i hope which i hope they're going to form a single book and the main one is a series of poems to a brother who uh who's a, a brother who passed away and they're like, I guess, about family and the limits of autobiography and fiction. And yeah, I've just been, I've just been really kind of fixated on, I guess, trying to write from the perspective of remembered times, particularly in early childhood, remembered occasions, but as if. Um, I had a, a brother there. So yeah, I guess I should say I, I don't have a brother, I'm only child. So that's the kind of generating impulse behind them. Fascinating. Thank you. Well, we'll have to look forward to reading that in the future. Um, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, congratulations once again on the Felix Tess Prize win. Thank you for listening and many thanks to Will and to Flo. Don't forget you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Writer Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find out more about our NCW book club, our Discord community, all of our online courses and workshops and how to purchase an All Shall Be Well print for our Escalator fundraising campaign over on our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Yeah, I think I might need to get one of those for myself, Steph. I think you should, really. I've got one that I need to frame and put in my nice new house. Yeah, I think it would look, it would look nice on the back wall just behind my screen in the, in the kind of, the, well, not so temporary office that uh, I set up this year to work from home. Just a nice little reminder that all shall be well. So I can admire it in all your Zoom meetings. Exactly, exactly. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.